I'm Jared Janes, and this is Impactful. A couple quick notes before we get started. First off, a big thank you to everyone supporting Impactful on Patreon, and to everyone who shared, rated, and sent in feedback on the show. I see Impactful as a collaborative project, so you guys are literally shaping its future. On another note, this is the second part of a series. So if you didn't listen to the last episode on tribes, fair warning, things could get a little confusing, especially when we get back to talking about maps. So feel free to pause here, listen to part one, and I'll be waiting for you. All right, let's get the show on the road. Last time we talked about the value of seeing the ideas that hold our tribes together as maps instead of the actual territory. We then looked into how failing to do this is very dangerous, and yet extremely tempting. I also briefly mentioned that avoiding this temptation requires mindfulness. And that's what we're talking about today, how mindfulness helps us navigate our maps. But first, I want to define mindfulness. The funny thing is that my definition has changed a lot over the five years that I've been deliberately developing it. When I first started my mindfulness practice, if somebody were to ask me what it was, I would probably say something about bringing attention to the present moment or removing distractions from our experience. Years later, I'd most likely talk about how it's made of a few distinct qualities. And in many ways, I still agree with these definitions. But today, my favorite definition comes from John Yates or Juladasa. And it's actually pretty straightforward. Mindfulness is simply awareness. Now I want to be thorough, so let's make sure we're both thinking of the same thing when I say awareness. And to do that, we should also talk about how it's different from attention. Apologies to anyone who's already familiar with this definition, but repetition of important things like this is never a bad thing. All right, so imagine for a moment that you're in a restaurant. You've been enjoying a drink with your friend, and you're both ready for another. So you walk across the crowded room, tell the bartender to put another round on your tab, and you grab your uncomfortably full drinks and start making your way back to your seat. Now, to do this successfully, you'll need to pay close attention to the glasses so that they don't spill. And at the same time, you need to be aware of your surroundings. The big thing to notice here is that attention is more narrow and detailed. And awareness, or mindfulness, is broad and less detailed. And in this situation, if your attention fails, you'll likely spill the drinks. Now, if you're not mindful, you could end up taking the wrong path, tripping over a drunken patron, or failing to notice when your attention is no longer with the glasses. And that's the key here. Attention without mindfulness doesn't work very well. It just moves to the loudest thing in our experience with little to no knowledge of the bigger picture. Mindfulness provides that bigger picture. That way we can intelligently navigate our physical and mental territory. And while mindfulness of the world around us is usually pretty natural, Mindfulness of our internal experience is harder to master, especially if we're overwhelmed. But if we develop this internal or introspective awareness, it becomes much easier to ensure that our attention is being directed to the right things at the right time. Otherwise, it will just sporadically move to the loudest thing in our experience, which, if you think about it, usually ends up being the things we aren't satisfied with. So we end up spending most of our lives just paying attention to everything we want but don't have. And couple that with the complexity of modern life, and it makes it even harder for us to escape this fate. We're surrounded by things yelling for our attention, 
and a good portion of them are trying to sell us things by pointing out everything we don't have. Today, our mindfulness is almost always overwhelmed and significantly diminished. Oof, this is quickly becoming a very depressing episode. But you know me, I'd never leave you hopeless. So what can we do about this? Well, I'm happy to say that there are many ways to cultivate mindfulness in this crazy world. And while meditation is usually the first thing to come to mind, there are other ways to develop it in everyday life. Any activity that deliberately and repeatedly directs our attention, builds mindfulness, and strengthens our ability to focus in the process. That could mean reading a book, creating a piece of art, or listening to a dense podcast. Each of these things requires sustained attention. And to do that, we have to be mindful of the things trying to distract us. And every time we make the choice to stay with the task at hand, we reinforce the importance and in turn, the development of our awareness, which leads us to having more information and making smarter decisions. Think about it. Part of us wants to give all our attention to that narrow perspective of anger whenever we get cut off in traffic. But if we're mindful, that anger is just a small portion of the bigger picture. And when we can see that, it's much easier to realize how trivial or unproductive it would be to give all of your attention and, in turn, action to that anger. Once we understand the mechanics of mindfulness, it becomes really easy to see how its broad perspective helps us with things like stress, anxiety, and our general well-being. All right. Now that we've established the basics of how a broader perspective helps us navigate day-to-day -day challenges, I want to go deeper and talk about some of the more profound transformations mindfulness can lead to. Especially when we really develop that introspective type of mindfulness. These deep transformations are often ignored or overlooked, especially in Western culture, but I think that's a huge mistake. So we're taking the deep dive today. But before we do, we have to circle back to the map versus territory metaphor we talked about in part one of this series. For a quick refresher, we pointed out that the actual territory of our lives is overwhelmingly complex. And to deal with this, we construct simplified maps to help us navigate life. And these maps are never perfect, because we fabricate them from our tiny human perspective. Now, last time we focused mostly on the problems that arise when groups mistake these maps for the territory. But now, we're going to focus on how it affects us individually. And the scariest thing about our personal maps is that without mindfulness, they're extremely convincing. They can be stories about what's important to us, beliefs about our strengths or weaknesses, or more generally, the preferences that define us. The crazy thing here is that these things really aren't that different from the more obviously man-made ideas we covered last time. They're just harder to see. In the same way that my past dogmatic tribal philosophies didn't allow me to learn from other groups and ideas, my personal stories have limited me in similar ways. I created some of them, others were inherited from my family or culture, but all of them were constricting in their own way. Shit, it took me four years of meditation before I realized that the story I was telling myself about being a bad meditator was completely sabotaging my progress. But I'm not saying this belief about myself was useless. 
In fact, it was helpful when I started meditating because it didn't come easily for me. And I needed to be patient with my slow progress. But as I got better, I failed to see this story as the outdated map it actually was. And this is the danger of our limiting beliefs. They're hard to update, especially when we take them to be real. And over time, these barriers build up until our world becomes very, very small. All right, so where does mindfulness fit in this picture? Well, here's the thing. There are two ways to analyze these constructed ideas about ourselves. The up-close and personal way of attention, and the broad, more peripheral view of mindfulness. And the more we develop these ways of seeing, the easier it is to notice the gaps up close and the arbitrary, often conflicting and changing borders from afar. The stronger these tools for seeing become, the easier it is to notice when our maps are serving us or not. And just like I briefly mentioned in the past episode, the more mindfulness we have, the easier it is to skillfully utilize our personal and tribal maps. And while I think awareness is probably the most fundamental skill needed to do this, there are other approaches too. Take talk therapy, for example. It's basically recruiting someone to help identify, analyze, and deconstruct the fixed self-beliefs that cause us so much pain. But even with help, this can be an arduous process with modest results, especially without sufficient mindfulness. Also, when we consider how things like social media and advertising are constantly helping us create and solidify these stories about ourselves, things get even more bleak. We are in a mental health crisis right now. And unfortunately, I think most of the time, our standard pharmaceutical and psychological therapies are failing to address the root cause. But this is where things get really interesting. With enough dedication, there is a more foundational path to liberating ourselves from this burden. I was lucky enough to stumble upon it, and while a lot of traditions don't talk about it openly, I think that's starting to change. Plus, I've never been much of a traditionalist. Or is that just another story I'm telling myself? Anyways, buckle up, because things are about to get a little weird. When I first started my meditation habit, it was very modest. It took me years to work my way up from 7 to 20 minutes of daily practice. But I stuck with it, because even in the beginning, I noticed that the rest of the day I was less emotionally reactive, more accepting. And it was a lot easier to think about someone other than myself. But at the time, I didn't really understand why. So I started digging into the philosophy and science behind meditation. And the interesting thing was that the idea of moving past the self was a common theme. At first, I assumed it was just armchair philosophy or a spiritual trope. But the more it came up, the more down-to-earth it started to become. And it also was becoming obvious that if I was going to understand it better, I was going to need some more personalized guidance. So I made a mental note about it, told my wife that I intended to eventually go on a meditation retreat, spent about 10 minutes looking for one online, and then most likely due to a mix of procrastination and a distrust of formal education, forgot about it. 
But luckily, my wife was far more reliable than me. So it was no surprise when she was the one who found the perfect retreat for me to dip my toes into the spiritual waters. A few months, a lot of research, and a couple of retreats later, I felt like I had a real grasp on moving past the self and how it was related to my practice. But even during that second retreat, which went into depth about this, I was still framing things from a theory and logic perspective instead of actual experience. Then that all changed the day after getting back from that second retreat, which, side note, was led by the host of my favorite podcast for meditation nerds called Deconstructing Yourself. Anyways, the mindfulness practice I learned there was mostly about bringing attention to internal experiences, things like self-talk, mental imagery, and emotions. And I spent the whole retreat doing just that. But then, after getting home and processing the ideas further, something interesting happened. While curiously looking at myself in the mirror, instead of deliberately bringing my attention to my internal experience, I spontaneously became mindful of it instead. And while this shift in perspective might not sound like a big deal, it was actually the most profound experience of my life. I went from being a separate, unsatisfied self behind a pair of eyes to being everything I was seeing, hearing, and feeling in that moment. It was like being freed from a jail that I never knew existed. Everything I'd ever wanted or feared, much of which I'd never really been consciously aware of, simply dissolved and became so ridiculous that the only thing I could do was laugh. Luckily, I wasn't in public. Otherwise, people would have thought I had lost my mind. Which I guess I kind of did, but in the best way possible. Anyways, this state of mind changed over time, but it was weeks before I felt like a self again. So what the hell was this experience, and why am I telling you about it? Well, what I realized in that moment was that Jared was just another map I'd unknowingly been creating for 30 years. A vaguely coherent idea of who I was, based on countless intertwined, personal, familial, and cultural maps, all constructed from a limited human perspective. On top of that, this experience also allowed me to see how all of these beliefs were just mangled, conflicting shadows of the past. To believe that there was some solid, unchanging thing called Jared made about as much sense in that moment as the idea of Santa Claus. Somehow, through a combination of chance, study, and meditation, I stumbled upon a way to see and actually experience the fabricated nature of what I thought was myself. Suddenly, a lifetime of personal barriers became fictional. They were all still there, but I couldn't take them seriously. Their realness dissolved the moment they ceased to have an owner. And while my visceral sense of self eventually came back to some degree, the belief that my maps, including Jared, were the actual territory never did. This change in perspective has affected and expanded everything about my experience. Most noticeably, it supercharged my mindfulness and attention, drastically slowed down time, created what may be best described as the exact opposite of a fixed mindset. And it's allowed me to be more content 
and connected with life than I ever thought humanly possible. I've also noticed that many of the spiritual, cultural, and religious platitudes I'd spent my life sneering at make a lot more sense when seen simply as stories pointing to experiences. Experiences that change the way we see ourselves, and in turn, our connection to everything else. Which leads me to the most obvious understanding of this point of view. Words, just like maps, can only point to these insights. So if this claim sounds crazy to you, which it probably does, and it did to me for a long time too, don't take my word for it. To truly understand ourselves, we need the tools and circumstances to see through the illusions we construct. My goal in this show, and everything else I do, is to make these tools accessible to anyone. And I started with mindfulness because I think it's the most fundamental, useful, and versatile of them all. In the next episode of the series, I'll talk more about the implications of this unique perspective. But before that, I want to wrap this episode up by coming back down to earth for a minute and highlighting a few takeaways. First off, my path obviously isn't the path. And I think the most profound insights are always personal. So never mistake what I've said here as anything other than, you guessed it, a map. Also, Remember, the more formal and casual mindfulness practice we do, the more likely we are to find our own paths. And the benefit of practice comes quickly, even if it's modest in the beginning. But I think the most important thing to remember here is that modern life is rarely friendly to our practice. So if we want to see results, it's best to make deliberate, personalized, and flexible plans. And now that we've established the basic building blocks of a mindfulness practice, go for it. If you're feeling overwhelmed, you can always take a look at this episode's influences and suggested content at impactful.info. And lastly, I want to leave you with a note of caution. Possible side effects of intense mindfulness practice can include emotional distress, anxiety, depression, the resurfacing of trauma, and disillusionment. All joking aside, these are real things to be considered especially if you have a history of mental health issues. Which is why, if you're serious about your practice, it's extremely helpful to work with a qualified coach and a licensed therapist if things get tough. Another way to aid your progress is to find peers to work with. The support and motivation provided in groups is extremely valuable. I wish I would have done this a lot sooner than I did. If you have any questions about where to start, need some help establishing a practice, or want to dive deeper into the philosophy, feel free to reach out to me at jaredjanes.com. You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com impactful, or by simply sharing an episode with someone you think will enjoy it. As always, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next month.